0: with a small group of families and children who are just trying to show God's love. A group of women in our neighborhood were talking about how can we find ways to serve in a meaningful way with our children. And we all had a growing heart, not only for children, but for refugee families. And shortly after that meeting in my living room, the Love Your Neighbor Club was formed. The mission of the Love Your Neighbor Club is to serve children in our community and refugee families with our children alongside of us. About a year ago, I got a phone call um, from our church, and there was a call out for finding a woman to come alongside um, another woman who was a resettled refugee. Cher had three children, and her husband had recently died in a car accident. And since I had gotten the phone call from our church, God was nudging me and saying, Ellie, this, this could be you, this could be you. And I said, okay, it, it'll be me. She and I were able to visit and, you know, she started crying and I thought, gosh, I don't know how I would be able to keep it together. She's just lost her best friend, her husband. She's come to this country and she's got three kids that are my kids' ages, so a friendship sparked in all of that, in this shared humanity. Because on paper, she and I, we were living identical lives. Elevate last year was doing Peter Pan, and reached out to her and said, would you and your kids like to meet up with me and my kids, and we'll go see this play together. And she said, we've never been to a play. They came up to Kesslinger, and the kids got to meet each other, and they lined up perfectly in age. The kids are chatting, and we take our seats, And all of a sudden she gets really quiet and she just breaks into tears and she takes my hand and she said, Ellie, I have to tell you, in my whole life, I've never had a friend before. You are my first friend and I give thanks to God for you and for your family. Thank you for inviting us today. And so here are two women sitting there with our kids all around us and we're both sobbing and Peter Pan was awesome, but that. It's just the beginning of, it's been a beautiful friendship where I think I have learned more about my faith through CHUR. How can you bring about justice with a small group of families and children who are just trying to show God's love? Once you see the, the ties that bind us, once you see our common and shared humanity, compassion follows.
1: beautiful story. We all know Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, Those are precious words to us here at Chapel Street. It's what we build a lot of our ministries on, uh, loving your neighbor, serving your neighbor, and I love the story of the Love Your Neighbor Club. Another thing that many of you know and some of you may not know is that Chapel Street has been involved with refugee-oriented ministries for well over 30 years now. Uh, And we were sort of involved in that kind of ministry before it was a thing uh, here in in Churches in America. So I thank Ellie for her story, and we will hear from more of those stories as this series goes on. Well, today's the big game, right? Today's the big game. An estimated 100 million Americans and millions more people around the world are going to watch the Super Bowl this afternoon or this evening. It takes forever for the game to start. Uh, The Kansas City Chiefs will play the Tampa Bay Buccaneers in Super Bowl. What number is it? 55, which means that it would spend 35 years since the Bears won their only Super Bowl. Does that make you feel old? (laughs) Makes me feel kind of ancient. Now, I can't tell you who's going to win the game today. I don't really have a rooting interest this time, but I can predict with great certainty uh, one thing. I can promise you, if you watch the game, at some point during the game, there's going to be a close call. Uh, Maybe about whether or not a player actually caught a pass. Maybe about whether or not a player stepped out of bounds. Maybe about whether or not the ball actually crossed the plane of the goal line. But something's going to happen, and the referees are going to stop the game, and they're going to review the play on video. And they're going to watch it from six or eight different angles, they have like 150 cameras in the stadium. And they're going to watch it in slow, slow motion, in super slow motion, frame by frame, almost like it's the Zepruder film, right? And they're going to then s- consult experts who are meeting in a secret room in New York City, and judgment is going to be rendered. And millions of fans will hold their breath waiting for that announcement. Will the call be upheld, or will it be overturned? And all this effort's going to be made just to make sure The call in a football game is right, to be sure the call is just, because getting it right matters, because justice matters. Now, we hear a lot about justice these days, and rightly so, because justice does matter, getting things right matters. But most of the talk we hear today comes from the political realm. We hear talk about social justice, and of course that matters. We hear about racial justice, of course that matters. We hear about economic justice, and of course that matters. In fact, the promise of justice is in our National Pledge of Allegiance. The whole thing ends with with liberty and justice for all. But I was thinking about that this week, and I wonder how many Americans say those words and recognize that they come from the Bible, I wonder how many people recognize that those words come from the heart of God himself. But what is justice? Is justice defined by politics? Is justice defined by governments? Is justice defined by our culture? As Christians, followers of Jesus, we believe that what is right and what is just is rooted in the character of God himself and then is revealed to us in his word. And that's why today we're beginning a four-week series called And Justice for All. And over these next four weeks, we are going to try to, going to, try to set aside um, political views and opinions, and all these things have been deeply politicized uh, in our lives. And we're going to explore several key questions. We're going to ask, how does the Bible define justice? What does God have to say about justice? What does the gospel have to do with justice? In his book called The Knowledge of the Holy, A.W. Tozer writes this, and I don't usually use long quotes in sermons, but I think this one is worth it, so watch the screens as I read. A.W. Tozer writes, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion. And man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. Those are thoughtful words, important words. So our focus in this series is going to be on who God is and what God wants. Now, our text today, as we begin, is going to be in the New Testament, in Luke chapter 4. We're going to start there, and then we're going to bounce around a little bit and dig in. So stick with me and watch on the screens as I read this great passage. Luke 4, beginning in verse 16. The very beginning of Jesus' public ministry. And he, that's Jesus, came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. We just finished a whole series on Sabbath, and Jesus was observing the Sabbath on this day. And he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind." To set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, to understand uh, what's happening here, we do need to see that Jesus is actually quoting from the prophet Isaiah. So let's scroll back. Uh, to to Isaiah chapter 61 to read what is said there. Isaiah the prophet wrote some 700 years before Jesus uh, said these things. The spirit of the Lord Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. As we begin this series, I want to start with three foundational truths. The God of justice, Jesus and justice, and then the gospel and justice. We're going to begin with the God of justice. Uh, my dad uh, tells a story from uh, way back when he was in grade school, maybe fourth or fifth grade. Uh, he and his best buddy at that time, a boy whose name was Bobby Canals. Uh, they were chosen to be crossing guards in the street right in front of their, their grade school. You remember what that was. You got the little vest, and you got to stand there and make sure all the your classmates crossed over the last little street there safely to get into the school. Uh, so they were honored to have this responsibility. Well, after doing this for a little while, I don't know how many days, the power, he says the power and the authority and the position kind of went to their heads. And they started charging these little kids, a crossing tax. They would get the younger children to give them a few pennies or a nickel, or even sometimes cookies out of their lunch boxes to allow them to cross the street. They worked out handsomely. They were just rolling in cash for at least a few days until the word of their extortion made it to the school principal's office, and then they were hauled in to face justice. My dad says the principal, who was a large man, um, it was on his side of the desk, and they brought the two little boys in, and he said the, the principal leaned over his desk and grabbed his friend, Bobby, by the shirt collar. I don't think you can do that today, but he grabbed him by the collar and pulled him up over the desk and said in a loud voice, "Canouse, if you ever do something like that again, I'll make mincemeat out of you. My dad remembers the words exactly because it terrified him, and those two boys never did that thing again. They did some other stuff, but never that thing again. What does the Bible tell us about God and justice? We look back to Isaiah 61. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. In my faithfulness I will reward my people and make an everlasting covenant with them. Psalm 33. The Lord loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of his unfailing love. Now that verse includes three great rich Hebrew words that are most often used to describe the character of God in the Old Testament. Uh, Zedekah, the word usually translated as righteousness, is one. Then mishpat, which is usually translated justice. And then hesed, unfailing love. We'll come back to those words in just a minute. Isaiah 51. Listen to me, my people. Hear me, my nation. Instruction will go out from me. My justice will become a light to the nations. Isaiah 1, when you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I am not listening. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Now, I could probably tick through 50 Old Testament passages that emphasize the very same thing about God. That God is just. Justice isn't something he does to match some sort of cultural expectation we have. Justice is who God is and he cares deeply about it. Now notice this last passage includes a picture of what justice mishpat in the Hebrew will look like. He says stop doing wrong, learn to do right, seek justice. Which means what? defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless, and plead the case of the widow. In other words, the most vulnerable. Those with the fewest rights, those with the fewest resources, the least in power and position need to be the focus of justice because that's what God cares about. Over and over again in the Old Testament, we see God commanding his people to care for the most vulnerable among them. And furthermore, Failure to do so not only violates the very character of God, but renders their worship meaningless before him. We're going to come back to that in a few weeks. Now, let's take a look at those two key words. First, mishpat. In the Hebrew, it's usually translated justice in English. It just means setting things right. It points to the standard by which we know what is right and good. The other word is tzedekah. Uh, usually translated as righteousness, and they're used interchangeably sometimes, but it points, out to, l- points to living out that standard of justice and how we treat others. Uh, maybe this w- will help you think about these two words. It helps me a little bit. Not a perfect analogy, but I think of it like this. Justice is like the rule book for playing the game. Justice tells us how the game should be played correctly. Righteousness is actually playing the game according to the rules. Okay? So the Bible tells us that God is both just and righteous. Now, why does this matter? Because justice must have an absolute standard. Justice must come from absolute authority. Now, throughout human history, uh, justice has been determined by whoever has the most power. By power, I mean political power, and it's really not a reliable source for justice. For example, in America, in our country, it was once legal to own a human being as a slave. It was legal, but it was not just. In Nazi Germany, it was once legal to arrest Jews and throw them in prison because of their ancestry. Legal, but not just. In America today, it's legal to terminate the life of the unborn. It's legal... It's not just. Human governments do not have the authority to establish with absolute correctness what is just. Human laws do not establish what is just. Only an eternal and omnipotent God can establish what is just. The Bible tells us that God is both just and righteous, and that his justice flows from his love. Why does God care so much about justice? Why does God talk so much about it in the Old Testament? Because justice is about people, and God loves people. All human beings are loved by God because they are created, we are created, in his own image. Therefore, God wants justice for every human being. Now, justice can be seen in two ways. Uh, We can think about justice as judgment, as in bringing criminals to justice... And this is justice in a punitive sense, kind of like my dad and his buddy standing before the principal. Justice can also be seen as goodness and righteousness and rightness that is reflecting God's love and desire for justice for all people, especially the most vulnerable. That's the God of justice, and that leads us, secondly, to Jesus and justice. Jesus and justice, another story from my uh, my dad's early life. I was thinking about these things because he spent a couple of months with us recently. But when he was just a bit older than the story I told before, a young teenager, I think maybe in eighth grade, he and a, a, a different friend went out on Halloween night. And uh, they were just uh, just bumming around town looking for something to do. And they got the bright idea that it was Halloween night and they should uh, like pull a prank on somebody. So they uh, started taking handfuls of small pebbles off the street and tossing them up on the the roofs of people's houses. And that day in that small town, a lot of the roofs of the houses were made of tin or some material where the pebbles would make a really loud clatter. And so they were going around town and they were uh, scaring people by throwing handfuls of pebbles on their their roofs. Well, one of the people they did this to was an older gentleman. um, And he happened to step outside and he recognized uh, the two young vandals and he called the police. Uh, My dad and his buddy got picked up in a squad car, taken to the local police station. They were thrown into a holding cell. They're in eighth grade, Uh, and I think that the sheriff was just wanting to scare them, but he put them in the cell. Think uh, think the jail in Mayberry. It was was in the Andy Griffith Show. That's what it was like. And then the police chief, uh, in order to teach them a lesson, made each boy call their family to have someone come and identify them, although he knew who they were, to identify them to uh, get them out. And my dad's um, oldest sister came, because his mother was a widow at that time, so the oldest sister came, and when the police chief asked her what what she wanted him to do with her young, mischievous little brother, she looked at him through the bars and said, let him rot, and she left. Eventually he got out, but she wanted to teach him a lesson too. In other words, he did the crime, let him do the time, right? Back to the text, Luke 4, let me read this again. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as it was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scrolls, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. That's what rabbis did in that day. They stood up to read the text, and they sat down to teach. So he sits down, he's getting ready to teach, and it says all the eyes of the synagogue were fixed on him. It's a moment of great tension. The rabbi who grew up in our town, who's become famous for doing miracles, has come back to our town. He's read from the scroll. Now he's going to teach us from God's law. And this is what he says. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. A one-sentence sermon. Wouldn't that be nice? One sentence sermon. Jesus is doing several things here. He reads from Isaiah intentionally. He does so because he knows his listeners will understand and know that passage. They knew it very well. This is a messianic prophecy. It tells of a time when Messiah will come, when the promised one will come, and the kingdom of God will arrive. And for the ancient Jews, this meant that it was what they hoped for. It's what they longed for, that God was going to send a new king to set them free, to be deliverance for his people. So Jesus here is announcing the arrival of the kingdom of God. And simultaneously, he's announcing that he himself is the fulfillment of that 700-year-old prophecy. He's making the astonishing claim that he is the Messiah of God. And thereby, he's the very embodiment of the love and justice of God. In the book of Hebrews, we read the sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying that when Messiah comes, when the kingdom of God arrives, this is what will happen. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to proclaim good news. He says when Messiah comes and I am he, the good news will be proclaimed. And that leads us To the third thing I want to talk about today, and that is the gospel and justice. The gospel and justice. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news. Now, notice, right here, Jesus could have stopped. He could have unrolled the scroll, read this portion of Isaiah, and stopped right after good news. He's proclaimed, He's anointed me to proclaim good news. But He doesn't stop there. He could have said, To proclaim good news to Israel, to you, the chosen people of God, that he's going to bless you with good things. But he doesn't. He keeps talking. He keeps quoting Isaiah. He says, he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, we today uh, know what the good news is. The good news is the gospel. The good news is that God has provided a way for us, for every one of us, to be reconciled to himself, to be made right with him. No longer will we need the blood of animals to be sacrificed to atone for our sins. The blood of Christ did this once for all. We know that from the New Testament. No longer do we have to put our hope in religious rituals and religious performance. Our hope is in the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's the gospel. Romans tells us, in the words of the Apostle Paul, Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, that we're justified is important. God is just. God's justice must be satisfied because we, are, we have sinned against him. And he satisfies his justice through faith. His grace. Since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. The gospel tells us that God has justified unjust people by his grace. But notice here in this text, notice to whom Jesus is proclaiming good news. And you've already heard it. There are five statements made, each with a kind of double meaning. Let me go through them. To proclaim good news to the poor, he says. Now here, is Jesus talking about the materially poor, the literally poor, the economically poor, or is he talking about the poor in spirit? In Matthew's version of the Beatitudes, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. In Luke's version of the same thing, he says, blessed are the poor. Which one is it? The answer is both. The poor in spirit and the materially poor. He says, I've come to proclaim liberty to the captives. Now, the word liberty here uh, means to set free or to forgive. Is Jesus talking about those still captive to sin and death? Or is he talking about those literally captive to social injustice? The answer is both. He says, and recovering of sight to the blind. Is he talking about the literally blind? Yes, because Jesus healed several blind men in his public ministry. But he's also talking about the spiritually spiritually blind, those who cannot see the truth, who will not see the truth because of their own pride and sinfulness. He says to set at liberty those who are oppressed. The word oppressed here means the crushed ones, the broken ones. The gospel brings forgiveness and healing to those broken by sin and the evil one. But he's also talking about those who have been crushed and oppressed by unjust systems. This is why uh, the followers of Jesus throughout history, the last 2,000 years, uh, the church has always been at the front of the line when it comes to compassionate um, and just, justice-oriented ministries to the vulnerable. From care for the poor to care for the sick, which the Christians did in the early pandemics of the, of the early church, to uh, care for uh, abandoned children in the Roman Empire, because families would just would just uh, leave, exposed children to death if they didn't want them, and the Christians would adopt them and raise them and care for them, f- to the treatment of women. Christianity was revolutionary in all these ways, because Jesus taught us to do that. It's why we've invested so much in our Shepherd's Heart Care Center. Because we believe Jesus when he said, I've come to proclaim good news to the poor. The poor in spirit and to the poor. And then finally he says, To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, what does that mean? Well, that's a reference to the Old Testament year of Jubilee where once every 50 years, God said, all debts are to be canceled, all captives are to be set free, all property returned to the original owners, a complete social and economic reset. It's way back in the Old Testament. It's the command of God. But interestingly, there's no evidence in Scripture that the ancient Israelites ever did that, not even once. And it's easy to understand why, right? A complete economic reset means the wealthy are going to give up some things. And they didn't want to. But Jesus here uses this phrase because he's saying all of this points to me. He has anointed me. I am the one who can and will set all things right again. I am the one who can and will make all things new again. Now, throughout the centuries, there have been two primary interpretations of what Jesus says here. One might be called the spiritual interpretation. And one might be called the social interpretation. And there are whole streams of thought in the church moving down to the last century or, or century and a half that go in one of these two directions. The spiritual interpretation takes the view that Jesus here is only talking about individual, vertical relationship with God, that, that these are all figurative uh, expressions, the poor, the captive, the blind, that they're all to be taken spiritually, that, the mo- that what matters most is getting your heart set right with God that that's what matters. The social interpretation says that, no, Jesus is talking about the material needs of those who are vulnerable, that what matters is compassionate action toward the poor and disadvantaged. What matters is meeting people's physical and material needs. You see the two strands? One is spiritualizing it, and the other is making it sheerly material. Which one is it? Which does he mean, as as I've already said, The best interpretation is it means both. Jesus meant both at the same time. James tells us as much when he writes, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes or daily food. If one of you says to them, Go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Now, what James is teaching us and what Jesus is teaching us is that the gospel is both spiritual and social. The gospel has both spiritual and social impact. That's why, by the way, we say here at Chapel Street all the time that we we want, we believe God wants everyone to experience grace, grow in faith, and make an impact where they are. The gospel says we must be made right with God. Jesus said you must be born again. The only way to be made right with God is to become poor in spirit. To recognize that we have violated the justice and righteousness of God through our own actions, through our own selfishness, through our own sin. And when we see ourselves as poor, blind, captive, and oppressed, crushed by sin, we are then able to receive the gift of God's grace and mercy in Christ." To accept by faith that in Christ the justice of God has been satisfied and has been satisfied by the grace of God. But that's not all. The gospel then tells us that we become the righteousness of God. Paul in 2 Corinthians says, For our sake he made him, that's Christ, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I think we often forget this. We often think, well... You know, get my sins forgiven, go to heaven when I die. That's only part of the gospel. The gospel says your sins can be forgiven, and then he imparts to you his own righteousness. Remember what righteousness is? Righteousness is living according to the justice, the absolute justice of God. It's living that out in the way we live. Jesus is telling us that gospel transformation always produces righteousness and justice. When we are set right with God vertically, we live in right relationships and we treat others rightly who are around us. So justice, therefore, is both a sign that the kingdom of God has arrived and a witness to the redeeming work of Christ in the world. Uh, years ago, uh, one of our boys came, <coughs> excuse me, came home from school <coughs> Excuse me, covered in mud. He came home Walked in the house, just clearly something had happened. So when we asked him what happened, he told us that after school, uh, another boy had jumped out from behind the school, surprised him, jumped him, and shoved him down in the, into a mud puddle. So, in short, he was bullied. Now, as a parent, you know how we reacted. Uh, That's not right. It's not right. That's not just. We were concerned, but more than concerned, we were uh, a borderline. Outraged. You know, we're parents. We wanted justice for our son, so we called the principal to the school to tell the principal what happened, and the principal promised to take action, take care of the situation. And we found out later that the principal's way of handling it was to call both boys in, to assign equal blame to both for the altercation, and the principal then punished both boys equally. So, in a way, our efforts at justice made things worse for our son. We did not receive justice, at least not. What we were looking for not from that particular administrator at that particular school. But there's a great lesson in that little story. Justice is good. Justice matters. Every human being deserves justice. We want justice. We want justice for our kids. We want justice for ourselves and we should want it for others as well. We are to work for justice. We are to expect justice. But as human beings, We are not capable of complete justice and righteousness. Human systems and human institutions and human governments are not capable of complete justice and righteousness. They aren't. Only God is perfectly just. Only God is perfectly just. Only God can make us righteous. And he does so through the power of the gospel. And here's the phrase I want to leave you with today as we begin this series. Jesus, the just one, justifies our unjust hearts by his grace that we might become agents of his justice in the world. That's where we begin. I hope you'll stay with us through this entire sermon series. Will you bow with me as we pray? Lord God, I thank you today for your word. I thank you for being the God of justice and righteousness and unfailing love, that we can know with absolute certainty what you are like. Remind us through your word and by your spirit that we are unjust and sinful people, apart from you. Remind us that we are poor in spirit. We are the blind. We are the captives. We are the oppressed. Remind us that we are only set right by your grace. And remind us that you set us right so that we may be agents of your love and your grace and your justice in the world. We pray these things in Jesus' name.